you know, um, I, I, I tell them that um, my expectation of managers is this. You must be humble. Mm-hmm. What is given to you is a trust, mm. the fiduciary duty mm. that you must fulfill to the best of your ability in managing those money. It's not a position of favor. It's not a position uh, of, of strength that you take for granted. Mm. And I only expect one thing from all my managers. I expect them to be to have to be humble, mm. to have humility, and not to go around uh, thinking that now they are a billion dollar fund manager. They can bully anybody any way they want. I say until you are a billionaire, I don't care how you be there. Wow! But until you if you are not a billionaire then you become like me. Mm. We all be as humble as we could, be as helpful as we could to everyone else and don't go around with your big ego. Mm. Because I am a big, I'm good in crushing egos. Wow. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firo.co slash free. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody back to the Fire Podcast, best place for long-term stock investors. Now, today's guest, my goodness, um, <laughs> I'm just going to do the intro straight. It's not, there's, there's no superlative, there's no description yeah. that I need apart from just the background. So today we have the founder of Afin Huang Asset Management, which was and probably is the fastest growing independent investment management house with nearly 80 billion ringgit worth of assets under management as of March 2021. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Ting Chiwai. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I have, have a first le- question. We right? have a legend in the house. Yeah, man. <laughs> I have a question, right? What does a man who, who found uh, an independent and investment management house with 80 billion of assets uh, actually eat for breakfast? I really want to know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every morning when I wake up, uh, one of the things I've done is to take my medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done it consistently for more than 15 over years. And I was told by a very good friend of mine, much older than me, probably about 15, 20 years older than me, to mm-hmm. say, you do it every morning. And you just tell yourself you love your family, you love your wife, and you do it just for them. And that will keep you alive for a long time. So that's what I do every morning. Um, just take my medicines every morning and make sure that I that I, I tell myself I love my family. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is a good breakfast crucial for you know someone who manages money and you know actually invests? Actually, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think we just want to start off with some of the basics, right? Um, and you know, obviously, you're known for being in the investment line, but I'm gonna start off with money in general. Mm. And what is what is your what your relationship with money? When do you realize it was important? Um, 
Actually, I never really realized money is important. You know, nowadays when I tell my staff, you know, um, money is not important. They say, boss, of course you say so because you have so much of it. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is really for years, money has never been important to me. I view it just as a means of buying things and uh, is a means of me making use of those wealth money that I have to make people around me happier. Mm. Uh, give to the needy. Uh, that's around me, even in very small. I remember when I was very young and someone came to me to say that they needed some money to build a church. And each time I, and each, each, each block of uh, bricks I, 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 I support, I had to contribute $10 and I took $100 out when I was a very young kid. Mm. And it was typical. Because those days you really have no money when you're a student. Yeah. But I did that and I felt that that was the right thing to do. So, so for me, from very young, it's been calculated to me that money is meant as a means to make other people, help other people, right? It's just not about us ourselves, gathering them for ourselves. It's about using it uh, to make uh, good use of it uh, for other people. The other thing I learned about money is this. When you're not ready to have a lot of money, mm. it's not a blessing. It's actually a curse to have mm. money. It's a very, very difficult perspective. But I look at history and I look at people who won jackpot in America. And you read history of them, you realize that a lot of them actually turned out a lot more worse off to have that jackpot than not having it. Yeah, athletes as well, you know, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's all about needing to learn through over time Mm. uh, as your wealth grows. How do you manage those wealth? Mm. I think one has to be mindful that you have to learn along the way. It's just not one point in time that you have money and then that's how you're going to live your life. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. really consistently living your life over the period of time as your wealth grows. Mm. Right. Yeah, also the other thing, uh, what made you move towards fund management? Since, since you know, uh, they, they could have been a lot of things that you've done in life, but you know, uh, share with us a bit about your story from being an actuarist and then, you know, uh, <laughs> following the path of where your boss sat and then all of a sudden you discover this love for, for hunting for stocks, uh, in a way. You know, I, I've always been very fascinated by the stock market, even when I, I, had, I know nothing about it. Mm. Um, even in those early days, uh, after school, um, when I went to work, and one day I pick up the paper, I look at the back of the screen. Those days, actually, you pick up in straight times or, or whatever, they have a, a page, all the stock code, the high buy, high and low share price and whatnot. And look at them, I, I, I see nothing. I don't know what it's all about. <laughs> and, but I was fascinated the, about the markets. I just wanted to try and know what it's about. And that's when I started my first investments uh, mm. of 23, mm. but really not knowing anything. I said that when I then decided to buy and I asked myself, what should I buy? Then I saw this company called Pancho Motors. Oh. I, was like, I know they sell Nissan cars in Malaysia. Mm. And then I started to buy my first stock and, and trading it and making two, three hundred bucks out of it. But, but that was just the start of the journey. How I got myself involved in investments is really following the, those days, in my days, we follow the orders of our bosses mm. who say that you have to be uh, posted to investment department and you have to learn about investment. I said, so be it. I'll take up the challenge. Although at that point of time, mm-hmm. I had no idea what investments was all about. Ah. I had to learn everything from scratch. Uh, and, and that's the task I've given to myself. Let's do it from scratch. Mm. And let's learn from scratch. And, I, and, and, and I, I'm actually a self-made man when it comes to investments. I learned everything on my own. Mm. Um, but I find that, that to be a very interesting journey. Then I'm not bound 
by the um, by the old way of doing things. I challenge the status quo mm-hmm. to ask myself why are people doing these things? Uh, why are people benchmarking their portfolio? Is it the right thing to do? Um, or, or should we not then typically go out and buy the things we think is best for our invest- our clients, or our, our investments? So, so I was trained in a very unconventional way. So what is yeah. So, sorry, sorry. So you have something to say? So what is that? You mentioned something very interesting. And, you know, I think today, especially people in their 20s or, or, or younger, even their 30s, you know, challenging their bosses and all that is a little bit more common nowadays. But certainly <laughs> your time was rare. And that's why I want to get your thoughts on what actually were you challenging? Well, I'm sure there were many myths that you thought that just didn't make sense, but people were just doing it because their boss were doing it. But what are some of the things that you looked at it, everyone's doing, but it just didn't make sense that you just decided to challenge? I think when I talk about challenging, it's not about challenging my boss, but it's actually challenging the status quo of the Mm, industry, mm, 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 of the investment industry, how how money has been managed. Mm. And there, there lies in the fact that we saw the rise of ETFs in the last 10 years or so. Yeah. It mm. came from the challenge I had. Mm. Why are people managing money this way? Mm. Where they typically just benchmark underweight, overweight. It just <laughs> doesn't make sense to me at all, right? <laughs> if you like something and it's good, you just buy accordingly. Yeah. Right? And you say underweight is a, is a lousy stock, but I say to buy it because in the index. Does it make sense to you? It doesn't definitely <laughs> But that's how is it like in the industry in the year 2000, mm. in the 90s. <clears throat> and that's what I challenge. Mm. And today you have seen the rise of ETFs. And that's precisely because most fund managers couldn't outperform the index because mm. of the nature of It's not that they're not good fund managers. They are yeah. good fund managers. That's right. But they are bound by the process. The risk process they must subject to. Yeah. So today we have seen ETFs. And that's the reason why ETFs has came around over the last 10 years or so. Mm. I mean, your cam actually, Dr. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, your cam. Uh, but, but just to roll a little bit back, which is, you know, the part where he said he was trained unconventionally. Mm, yes, and there's, yes. there's something that I really want to touch on because we are both from unconventional background. I'm an engineer by training. He, uh, yeah. he did international business in a way. But saying that, and you know the uh, the qualification or your, your door opener into the investment fund uh, industry is normally a CFA. Or you know, at least a, a marketing, uh, at least an accounting and finance background. Where do you see? And I know I'm going to ruffle a few feathers when I ask this question. <laughs> Where do you see the balance in being a good investor with all this rigidity in training? Okay, or do you see that the unconventional method actually triumphs? I mean, where, where what's your opinion on that? You know, <laughs> I think the beauty about investments is that you. Comes from can it can come from very different very uh, backgrounds. You yeah. don't need to just pure finance or, or accounting or CFA to make it in the investment world. I think mm. that's the beauty about investments. Mm. Um, but but you have them. It is helpful. Mm. It jumpstarts your career. Uh, it helps you to understand the the makings of the capital markets much easier. Mm. Right. Uh, but if, if, you do, if you don't have it, it doesn't mean there's the end of the world that you cannot start anywhere. Mm. You can. I can give you numerous of stories of people who are successful in their investment world and they have not, they have no CFA, they have no um, uh, finance or, 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 or the likes of those background. So point number one, um, that, that's a beauty. I think mm. why is that so? 
I think it comes down to the basic is that it's investments in art or a science. Ah, mm. uh, and, and it's a very interesting topic because it is, I always tell people, if investments is a pure science, then the one who will be able to do the best job in investment world will be the computers. <laughs> yeah. You and me, yeah. okay? Yeah. Because yeah. if you repetitively go through the iteration and to find the best stocks based on certain parameter mm. that is really been able to be measured, then the computers will be able to outbeat all human beings. Correct. But the truth is, it's not the case. Mm. So my, my sense is that because investments is a lot of science at the background of it, but it requires a lot of art into it, a lot of gut feel that comes along with it, a lot of experience that goes into it. People are looking at the same data but comes up with different interpretation. Right. Yeah. So, so, so my sense that's why we don't need uh, just just because we need to be we have uh, finance and then this makes you a better financier. It doesn't work that way. Mm. That, that's my view. So, to your point about experience and gut feel and all that, I wanna I wanna know a little bit more about your evolution as an investor. So do you, right now, your investing philosophy, was it the same one that you started out with when you were 23? MJ, if I take out my shirt and you look behind me, there's a lot of scars. <laughs> better, better, better scars. Better scars. Mistakes that I made that I'd probably be too, um, uh, too, too afraid to show anyone. It looks so silly actually, at the point of time, right? Uh, things that we've done, we learned along the way. Um, we are a lot more ambitious when we're young. We think that um, we cannot get it wrong at all in the marketplace. Mm. Uh, that's the typical mindset of young people, uh, which I can't, I won't blame them because they need to explore the world to find out yeah. who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we are, we are fortunate in the world that we live in, in the investment world that we are in. We are allowed to make that exploration. And the key is not to make those fatal mistakes that wouldn't allow you to come back. Mm. You can make some mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes, but, but make sure it's measurable. It's more enough to, to cause a dent, but not only enough to wipe off the portfolio. Mm. Um, and, and again, as I grow older, uh, you hope with that comes a little bit more wisdom. Mm. Uh, it means also a little bit more more conservative in your approach mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and be very sure what you're looking for when you invest in the stocks. And that's why when my young people come up to me and tell me about stock ideas, they realize that out of 10, they, they will tell, talk to me that about six or seven that I just am not interested in. Because, <laughs> you know, because I'm maybe too conservative or mm-hmm. I, I will tell them, I heard that story before. Ah. <laughs> this time it's not the same though. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so in terms of uh, your biggest, based on your mistakes, uh, and of course, you know, it's up to you whether you want to share them. <laughs> but, but in terms of what you've derived out of those mistakes, the biggest, there are obviously many lessons, right? But if you can sum it up to like the top two or top three uh, lessons that you learned from these mistakes, what would it be? I, I think number one is a blue sky scenario. I think everyone is always optimistic mm. in projection. Um, yeah, we're trusting to the management. Mm. Wow. Like we take them as gospel truth a lot of time, mm. and we're always guided by them. And, and, and the truth is that when you visit companies and, and talk to the management, most of them hardly share with you their challenges. Yeah. They will tell you what is good, what are they doing, orders are coming in. But they forgot to tell you that yeah, orders are coming, but raw material supply is having problems. They wouldn't tell you that, right? Mm. 
So, so you'll find, so you had to really run, run through a lot more um, uh, different scenarios on your mind, on your own, uh, to try to find out whether there are any other issues that they're facing. Mm-hmm. Because companies typically would not share with you their challenges. They'll share with you their, their, their opportunities, very common, uh, but definitely not the, the weakness and the threat part of the business. Uh, and then there's something that you have to learn how to navigate through mm-hmm. uh, as you, as you visit companies and as you look through uh, different different sectors uh, in in the portfolio. Um, I think the other thing that I, I find um, a mistake is really about sometimes when you realize that you're wrong in 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 in, in the uh, stock selection and you are just stubborn to to get out mm-hmm. very early stage uh, mm-hmm. when you're wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, long enough you then realize then the, the 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 losses gets deeper and it gets very very painful to, mm. to get out i think that's the other lesson that i've learned and these days when i find that i'm wrong in something i try not to be too stubborn about it mm. and when when there are certain levels that it has dropped it's time to take it out you just take it out from the portfolio and you know you move on because uh anytime when you delay it can be even more painful for the overall portfolio i see uh Touching on that, uh, that uh, Mr. Tang, <laughs> need uh, to call you that. See, yeah. uh, we only like how many minutes in? Twenty yeah. minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do have you de- in a way developed some kind of uh, what do you call it? Uh, gut feel judgment system to know where the yeah, how do you guy, do it? Actually? Yeah, how, how do you you know after a while, right? I mean, I I I love interviewing or meeting business owners and like what you said, they always paint to you blue sky, right? But there's always this fear because they are a public listed company. There's always this fear of revealing too much of their worries uh, or too much of their you know even secret sauce. Yeah, their secret sauce. And where 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 one is. Where do you find it's a good balance where they tell you their struggles? And two, whether have you developed a technique or a system that the questions you ask mm. will indirectly produce, let, uh, produce the answer you want? <laughs> yeah. There's no, I, I don't think there's one that you can have a question that, that mm. answer everything, right? Mm. I mean, if you ask them what worries you most at night when you, but you cannot sleep, they, they, they give you some answers, but you will never get the truth out of that. Mm. Exactly. Um, I guess you ask me really the truth will lies in if you spend enough time with them over over the years mm. that you get to know them, uh, not only them, but get to know their companies, the people that help them around. Actually, the best way of looking at uh-huh. is the people around them. Wow, that's a very good tip. Mm. I, I I typically don't just. Of course, you talk to the entrepreneur who started the business. Uh, these days, because of my my level, I get to mix a lot with a lot of them, and in a very close and manner, we, we spend a lot of time chatting. But I think I, I do look not only at them. I look at the people around them, their mm. CFO and, and the people running the business. They give me a clue I of see. how yeah the businesses are doing. Great. I think that's a very good tip. Yeah. You say that the non-CEO or non-founders are more likely to be candid. Am I right to say that in your experience? Not really. I think if they are founders and they they are more passionate, I find them they are they are very passionate about the business. Uh, they are they are they 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 they, they, they speak really uh, um, very very deeply about what what they are doing and why right. they're doing. Um, I, I think I think where I find it interesting is when you speak to some of them, and if all their motivation is just after money, mm. ah. it doesn't work. The motivation of in the business must go beyond it. Understand. Right. Of course, money is always the end result. I said to people that when you are successful, money will chase you. Mm. You don't need to chase money. Yeah. Money will follow you. Mm. They will multiply. Um, but you, but you must be good in what you're doing. Mm. Uh, 
I think similarly for for a lot of listed companies, a lot of the founders, the CEOs. I think if they if all they're interested is just pure compensation, I think it just doesn't. Mm. Okay. You must go beyond it. Understand. That is a very good insight. Actually, just leading up yeah. to that, right? Um, there's this debate about owner-operated and hired guns, right? Yeah. In, a, in a company. <laughs> so uh, I, I, we're actually not at the segment where we ask about management, but I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Like, have you, in your experience, found that it is a lot better to side with the guy who is owner-operated, right. he founded the company, or yeah. the guy who is the hired, hired gun. gun, the CEO? I, I don't think there's a straight answer to mm-hmm. it. I think there are uh, very good uh, entrepreneurially run uh, businesses and they've done and thrived and, and, and grown very well over the years. Yeah. Look at UOB as one. Right? Yeah. They've actually thrived and grew as a bank and continue to be very much entrepreneurially driven. Although they are now uh, surrounded with a lot more professional, mm. but the key decision making is still done by the family. And, and there are also stories of professionals have done very well, like me. I'm mm. a professional. Mm. Right? Mm. I, 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 don't, I don't own this business. Mm. I, although we own a share of it, uh, but, I, but, we have, but we as professionals, we run this business like our own business. Mm. Uh, we treat it like our own business, right? We, we do not take it that we are just an employee, employee and, and, and just doing a job, nine to five job. Mm. So, there are, so you ask me, I don't know, it all going to boil down to individual. I right? understand. Yeah. It's not going to be whether it's going to be entrepreneur or whether you're a professional. Okay. It's going to be individual who then make the difference in that company itself. Mm, yeah. So maybe let's uh, pivot it in a way. Uh, the next question is, if someone were to give you a business, you know, you, you mentioned that the younger ones give you, pitch you 10 ideas and six out of seven, <laughs> that doesn't get through, right? What, what will spark your interest uh, to dig further. What are the first few questions? Uh, what are the first few know? questions when, when the moment uh, uh, a stock is actually presented to you, actually? First thing I ask is scalability. Mm. I mean, I, I've seen over the years, a lot of companies can grow. Yeah. The market cap can grow from less than 100 million to 300 million, and it struggles after that. Mm. Because then whatever they're doing, they've hit a uh, critical size in the space that they operate. Mm. That 300 million market that grows to what to, 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 to grow to 1 billion is mm. another struggle. Mm. And from 1 billion to grow to 5 billion is a completely different struggle altogether. Mm. Struggle in terms of the market, struggle in terms of being able to build that skill and, and the production and whatnot that comes with it. So the first thing I ask is really about scalability. No point investing in something that cannot scale. Yeah. Because we, if you are investing over 10, 15 years, you need to see the company not at, 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 at maybe three, four X the revenue mm. uh, that period of time. Right? If they cannot be three, four X the revenue size, then you are wasting time, right? Because yeah. we're just going to be short term investments. That I can, I can invest short term. That's about it. Mm. So number one is scalability. Number two, I also like to have something that I can easily understand. Mm. Uh, I, I, I hate investing things that I cannot even understand at all, mm. right? Um, and that's why you, you, I will exclude a lot of other things. That I, I don't pretend I can understand everything, right? Mm. Something I just cannot understand them, so I will just exclude them. Uh, I like to invest in things I understand, things I, I know they are the drivers of growth, the contributors of the growth. I, I need to understand them. And lastly, I think um, will be the financial track record. Right? Those, those are things I look out for. Um, and if um, companies are growing, but they are taking up a lot of capital, then the question really, is it worth investing? Mm. Right? Uh, or, or they can grow and their capital like those are the most ideal business to invest in. But you know that there are not many businesses right. that, can in that can grow 
but their capital line. Very difficult to find. Mm. If you can find, it's worth following the trail. Understand? Yeah. Then, then a good segue to the next question. What was what is your favorite financial number when you look at these businesses? I mean, okay, there's one. Secondly, is if they don't have a track record, like for example, we see a lot of SaaS companies, especially in the US, right? They don't they don't actually have a financial track record. Then how how do you make that judgment? You wait until they prove themselves, then only there's the entry point, or you know, yeah. So favorite financial number first. I, I would think um free cash flows is something I look I, I love to look at it mm. because uh, I think companies must see whether they can continue to generate free cash flow to fund their own growth. Or mm. uh, each time they grow, they end up uh, as I said, taking up a lot more capital and their rights issue coming along the way. Yeah. So the ability to generate free cash flows is important. The other one that I look at is EBITDA. Right. It's also linked back to free cash flows. Mm, right? mm. Uh, it's just not about PNL because PNL you can easily mask the numbers. PITAS mm. uh, are a little bit better, better to look at uh, because it's a lot a lot more cleaner to look at. Uh, now these days you look at the financial statements. I also don't know how to read them after a while because it gets very complicated. These days there are 101 adjustments there and I don't understand some of this adjustment they're doing yeah. that has been uh, imposed uh, on this company. But I think the EBITAs are much better to understand. Okay. Um, as, as far as investing in SaaS and some of these SAS and platforms, uh, PAS and whatnot, no, my young guys are telling me, boss, nowadays you must pay six times um, revenue, <laughs> 10 times revenue, 15 times revenue. Don't ask about EBITDA, don't ask about profit. <laughs> There's nothing to talk about, right? <laughs> I, I find it a struggle, frankly. Really? I, I, don't, I don't invest. Uh, I generally, I don't invest. Mm. Um, I, I said I can't imagine. If I pay 15 times revenue, and if these guys are doubling up um, over a period of three years, uh, it's only end of third year uh, when, when you're probably going to see uh, decent, reasonable profits coming out, mm. and you're paying years ahead of the cycle. Mm. I can't bring myself to do it. I, I don't know. My young people can, but I can't. So to answer your question, really, John, uh-huh. I hardly invest in them. Okay. <laughs> Something more tangible. Okay. So how about how about the balance sheet side of the equation, yeah. right? Because um, people have varying views on on that. You know, some you know even experienced investors they think you know just know that at all or very little. Yeah, that. must but be net cash only. Yeah, then, yeah. but then some people find like no, actually that is important. In fact, it's an efficient use of capital. So wh- what camp are you in? I, I I think efficient use of capital is important. Uh, that's why your your ability to leverage up depends on your cash flow generation. Mm-hmm. If you can generate good cash flows, why not leverage up? Right? Yeah. leverage up about a third of your balance sheet or half your balance sheet is okay. Mm. But you might have the ability to generate cash flows and it's a lot more cheaper mm. from a capital standpoint mm. because the cost of debt today is probably about 4 or 5% max. Yep. Yes. 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 The cost of equity is about 8 10%. So it's cheaper mm. really from, from that perspective. So I would encourage corporates who, to, who, who can manage their balance sheet well to take some leverage. It's okay. Mm, okay, I mean now with um, the recent fiasco of Serba and yeah. uh, <laughs> and then uh, even this uh, company Yinsen, you know, they were recently they were kind of attacked on i3 where they were talking about they had debts three times of their balance sheet and yeah. things like that. So, in your um, view, right? When company go for rights, private placements, and uh, all these capital uh, exercises to actually raise uh, debt from either the equity market or the debt market, right? 
what would be your in a way confidence factor to know whether these guys uh can can actually it's the right decision yeah. to do the right issue basically. yeah um i think the let's look at placements and right frank yeah. i think placements um whenever it happens um for one, for the first time, I guess people will give you benefit of doubt that you are using that to deploy, mm. uh, to growth opportunities. Yeah. But having consistent placements coming out, one will be very, very, mm. uh, because it shows you that uh, the companies uh, have very in, uh, low ability to generate free cash flows mm. uh, to meet whatever working capital requirements that they need. Of course, sometimes there are a lot of uh, growth opportunities uh, that come out, uh, that can come into the company, come to the company, uh, and that requires uh, fresh capital. And that's why they are they are doing successive uh, placements. But generally, I have seen that uh, when there are just too many placements, first it's very dilutive, mm. uh, and it's very expensive because the cost of capital is very expensive on equity. Yeah. Uh, um, and 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 I, I would after a while, uh, I would I would I would, it would trigger some 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 reflect to me you know, mm. whenever that happens. Yeah. Rights, I think, um, to me, is a commitment from the assisting shareholders, mm-hmm. especially controlling shareholders, uh, that they have to take up the, the rights, and, and that, to me, is a, is a commitment. Mm. Right? You know, you're asking public to put in money. They themselves are putting proportionately their, their, their money yeah. into the business. Yeah. Yes. So I view it slightly differently. I see. Right? Uh, because to me, everything you must have skin in the game. That's yeah. good point. Uh, you cannot be asking public to put money in, and yet, uh, yet the conjuring shutters are not putting money to the to mm. the business. That's yeah. a different proposition altogether. So I view it slightly differently. Oh, great, great. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it, so that you actually know what you're doing especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time and manage your stock portfolio systematically. It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing you also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.viral.co slash courses slash SIB. Right. So uh, we'll talk about the future uh, later on. I'll talk a little bit about the past. So you've told us about what you look for in management, what you look for in the financials, what you look for in you know scalability, the quality, this side of things. So when it comes to your your past, right, what has been some of the success stories of companies that you've uh, that you've bought and you're like, wow, like it's 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 done well and why? Interesting, the ones that I bought um, for many years is actually a company called Yinsen. <laughs> <laughs> so ironic, uh, I was key numbers for Yinsen last night. Just to- <laughs> but when I first bought the company, the market cap was only about 180 million. Today, there are 6 billion, 5 billion market cap. Yeah. Uh, I think it was actually less than 200 million when I saw CY, the young man that ran the business. What impressed me wasn't 
really about their balance sheet. Their balance sheet is horrible. For yeah, the yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, they're in a capital, cap, uh, capital intensive business that needs fresh capital and their balance sheet was too small for the first two projects that undertaken in, in Vietnam. But this was years ago. Yeah, right, right. And they call for a rights issue and that's where I entered. Mm. Uh, during rights issue, we have a chat and what, I, what impressed me was the entrepreneur spirit of the young man. Mm. Uh, the, the son, guy, right? That's Mr. Lim's son. That was running, yeah. Mr. Lim's son, uh, CY. And I buy into him because of his vision of being able to scale up the business mm. and wanted to basically move into this uh, capital intensive industry that can generate long tail of uh, cash flows. What I didn't know was that the risk that he had taken on when uh, without the um, uh, without 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 uh, the experience of doing so, but because they had a very decent contract from the Petrovet, uh, that allows them to build in a buffer yeah. uh, for mistakes. Uh, truth be told, that they were they were they were mistakes made in the execution of the contracts, but it was not shown uh, because the, the buffer was high enough for them to make those mistakes and learn along the way. Mm. Of course, as time goes on, the, the, the young man managed to execute and bought into um, uh, the company in Norwegian. And, and from there, the real skill then came into Correct. Uh, the company. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's when then they scale up to get businesses in uh, West Africa and today in Brazil. Yeah. Today, the company is a lot more solid than the time when I bought it. Mm. I was asked by him one day, will you buy me uh, then and now? I said, today I will, I will have just bought your company with, a, with even both eyes closed because I knew <laughs> that you had the skills that back then it was a very risky bet, but it was a very small bet because it was only 200 million market cap. Mm. Today we are talking about 5 billion market cap is a different risk altogether. Yeah. So I think, I think you asked me what where were the success number one. It's about the people running it, right? Mm. It makes a lot of difference. Yes, they were venturing into uncharted territories, finding uh, a new growth areas from the logistic business that they had in the past. That has probably have skill issues eventually. Mm. So they went into it and 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 by and 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 by sure view and determination, they managed to build something uh, out of this new business and today has skilled up to be one of the top three, top five global players in the FPSO market. Yeah. Yeah. What what leveraging on that, what do you think was your I know you have a lot of daggers in the back, but probably the one that is really the biggest dagger that you feel <laughs> that you carry. And maybe if you're not comfortable revealing the company, what were the lessons that you learned? Specifically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what were the lessons that you learned? What were the blind spots that you 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 could have missed, right? Back then. As I said, I think the blind spot is too optimistic. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember this that public company that that, that um, someone was asking me to invest in, and it's like sure go right contracts mm. are there, ah. not go wrong. Mm. I think they are all to me red flags. Okay, <laughs> now I'm becoming contracts. I say, oh no, no, no. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> when someone tell you it's sure done and sure go and I said ah, though to me it's all reflex there's no such thing as sure done and, and 100% you you get you get it done and I think a lot a lot of time you are just too optimistic mm. uh, dependent on contracts to come in and you buy a hit of the contracts thinking that mm. it'll work out uh, most of the time it doesn't and a lot of time it doesn't and end up you hurt the share price and you hurt your investments mm. I, I prefer to now don't try to avoid things that are event driven. Mm. Uh, 
attracts uh, more sustainable, based on sustainable business. Uh, whenever there are new contracts, uh, the initial period seems to indicate there's no execution risk. There's no such thing as no execution risk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. The reality is there are lots of execution <laughs> That's risk. That's right. That we don't see it. Yeah. So you ask me, will I do the same thing with, with my investment in Instant? If today I will look at it, it may not. I may just say, hey, let, let's go slow on these things. Uh, because it's event driven. Mm. So you ask me what what I would tell you is that over the years, one one things I've learned is to try to be a little bit more um, cautious when it's just a pure event driven right. type of scenario uh, to drive share price movement. Great. Will you say there's less stress also when you just buy, you know, compounders, no event, you know, very boring, so. very dry. <laughs> but, but I, I still I still want some excitement in the portfolio. <laughs> I mean, one or two, but it's not going to be the big portfolio where everything is going to be event-driven. Mm. I try to avoid them because it's stressful when it doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. Right, when it doesn't happen, the share price drop 30, 40%, what can we do with it? Because yeah, yeah. it's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I try to avoid it lah, because, uh, and, and I know in the retail space, a lot of people like to invest uh, uh, with an event. Oh, event yes. Yes. I, I always tell myself, no, I try not to because part of it is that some part of those events are well priced in the stock price anyway. That's right. true, yeah. that's true. Yeah. You're just catching the tail, making the last 10, 15%, and if it doesn't happen, you catch the 30, 40% decline. Yeah. The risk reward is just stop worth it. Yeah. I mean, so, you I remember during the time when we had that COVID 19 vaccine and, and they were talking about. Um, uh, warehouses are needed for the delivery of vaccines, remember? Yeah, yes. I look at them and say, I look at all the share prices of the warehouses, all logistic guys all gone up. I said, Yeah, what's the upside to, to any investment? It's as if their space also grew <laughs> along with that. <laughs> so I, I said, I ah, know that that's not, not for me. So, Ling, so I think these are things I learned. Uh, right, if you right. ask me uh, in the past, great. So, link to your, your point about you know, uh, having still having some fun with event-driven companies, although, you know, smaller positions. And then your earlier point about Yinsen and you you betting on them when they were sub 200 million market cap and things like that. I want to get your thoughts on diversification because mm. this is another big topic that a yeah. lot of investors ask, you know, yeah. how many stocks to own, what should be the maximum amount of a percentage I should have in a single stock, things like that. When it goes up five times and it's now 25% of my portfolio, should I sell it, should I keep it? You know, what are your thoughts in general of diversification? I think I'm, I'm talking from a portfolio perspective because mm. portfolio we are managing about, let's say for me, eh? <clears throat> Yeah, I'm, although I'm not that active anymore, but I still carry some portfolios with me and I'm taking care of probably about three to four million worth of money. Mm-hmm. I'm still sizable. Of course, my colleagues are doing in billions, right? Uh, not, not, they, they, are, they are spending full time on, on portfolio management. Um, ideally, 30 stocks for me, mm-hmm. not more than 30 stocks, 25, 30 stocks, because that will give me average 3%. Mm-hmm. And on good stocks, I should have about 8, 10%. Uh, diversifier, those that are events, maybe 1, 2%. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you balance out, you, you get about 30 stocks exposure. I see. Uh, I, I hate having too many 1-2% uh, percentage exposure in my portfolio because that shows you no conviction at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my portfolio managers will always get scolding by me when they, I see too many 0.5% exposure, <laughs> I say you're wasting my time, right? You're not doing your job. You should be more disciplined. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's how I approach uh, diversification. I see. It's good. But these days, diversification is not just about, about stocks, but the number of stocks. 
It's about really strategy within the portfolio, right? Um, you can diversify with dividend yields in your portfolio. Individually, you can do that. Mm. Right? You put 30% in the dividends. You can also put about maybe 30, 40% in, in, in cyclicals or in, in things that are event-driven or whatever strategies that come out of it. Mm. And you can also put the balance wanted into what I call structural growth things that are growing perpetually, as you call compounders, mm. right? Um, and you put one to them, and those are the ones that you don't need to touch them, although it may go up three-fold, five-fold, ten-fold, just sit on it, because these are these are the ones who continue to grow. Mm. I think the lessons I learned, one important lesson I learned uh, in investments is this, write your winners, cut your losers. Mm. Not cut your winners, write the losers. Okay? Yeah. That's what all of us will do. Yeah. You forgot to cut loss. So we just say, it's okay lah, since I paid for it, I hold on to it. And from <laughs> $1 become one cent, still hold on to it. Okay. It's too late to cut by then. Yeah. He, then typically when that happened, I, I sell all my profits where I need to cover this loss. Mm. Wow. Winners will be compounders. Yeah. For yeah. me, the lesson learned for years is so difficult to find a winner. Mm. Why can't go so fast when the winners are delivering you the returns? Mm. Continue to sit on it despite market condition. Mm. Right? And then those losers that you have, get out as fast as you could because they will continue to bleed you mm. uh, over time. So how do you how do you do both of them, right? How do you, well, we, we talk about roughly how you can find a winner, but how do you psychologically hold on to a winner? And mm. then psychologically, when you're down 75% on, I don't know, whatever stock, right? Uh, that you just cut and say, yeah, you know, because some people have the mentality, if I don't sell, I don't lose money. Yeah, right? yeah. It's paper loss only. Loss aversion. <laughs> so how do you actually solve these two quite difficult psychological barriers? Yeah. I hope I don't need to reach 75% to cut my losses. It's good enough for me, right? Yeah. To cut it out and say, let's forget it, it doesn't work. Um, I think the, the, the characteristic, characteristic of the winners are, are really um, typically the compounders. Mm. Um, you, you have to be able to see whether they continue to be able to grow their revenue mm. at a growth rate of 15%, 10, 15% a year. Of course, today, when you talk about the likes of the Microsoft and the likes of they're talking about 20, 25% growth rates. Yep. Amazing, right? For the yep. size that they are operating in. Yeah. Of course, they are now having a good run given the adoption of cloud. Uh, in the enterprise solution. That is a big driver for their growth. Yeah. Um, so I think if you can find, I always tell people, you can find a stock that can deliver you 10% earnings growth a year, pays you 5% dividend, you have a big winners and a compounder in your portfolio. Mm. So you just need to look at historical. It's very difficult for me to say, uh, give you criteria, how, how which one should right. be. Uh, compounders and mission are not. Essentially, the historical chart record will be sure to show you in terms of the ability for them to grow their turnover and their profits and their ability to give you dividend without asking you for rights issue mm. or blame. Wow. Yeah. So if they can do that, just write on to that because they will be... So I'll give you an example, right? Panjung PLC used to have that ability. Of course, until the businesses hit a maturity stage right. on the number forecast and on their power plan, they started with number forecast and they added on the power industry into the portfolio. And again, they've been compounding despite the growth of the, despite adding on uh, the, 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 the power industries, uh, they utilize like, the, the cash very well. And these are all in the 90s and, and 2000. Mm. And the company grew over the years. Uh, and they were given four five percent dividend. They were delivering profits growth of 10, 12 percent a year. And you write it out over that period of time. It was a massive compounder mm. for any portfolio. Now that's something that you should look out for. And if you can find them, 
write it on, write on, write on to those portfolios. Yeah. Uh, but not easy to find. I must yeah. Say. And, and, and it's a good point because, you know, um, MJ and I, we focus mainly in the Malaysian market and, you know, we look at quite a lot of data. The struggle is finding companies that have a TAM or total addressable market just bigger than Malaysia because like certain things like last night, you know, uh, we were looking at MyEG, uh, Mr. Tang, and comparing that to vehicle growth uh, for, you know, road tax, right? The vehicle growth in Malaysia is just stagnated. So if you're just really just looking at just the Malaysian market, right? I mean, in a way, one is very difficult to, to, to separate uh, the good companies, but how or what industries do you think Malaysia can actually compete globally? And, you know, what, what's on your radar to be able to, to join on those, those kind of yeah. rides? You know, see? It's not easy though. Glove is one I can think of. <laughs> it's yeah. global. But what other industries do you think that- uh, I think our semi-cons uh, on the supply, supply chain actually are quite competitive globally. Mm. Uh, uh, I, think, I think where the, com- the ability to compete globally, yeah. I just see it's in the export sector, in our trade side. Mm. Uh, the equation, we have actually nurtured a lot of entrepreneurs who could compete globally uh, in this space. Mm. As I said earlier, uh, where this space will face fabulous headwinds today will be on the ESG, the social part, mm. uh, the treatment of foreign workers. I think we are seeing it coming in. And and to me, uh, at, the, at, the, at the core of it is actually good because it actually forces uh, a lot of companies to be good corporate citizens on how we treat our workers. Yeah. But at the other, the other hand of it, we also find that we question some of these direct, uh, 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 issues that are coming out. How much of it is about to uh, put a lot of pressure Mm. Uh, on developing countries as they grow. Yeah, that's right. right. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, we need to balance. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, I think we have grown a very good uh, globally competitive companies mm. uh, this particular space, the EMS space, the semicon space, the glove space. I think we have very, very competitive uh, industries are operating in Malaysia. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I, I don't see that many mm. uh, of our companies are out uh, in even in ASEAN. Don't talk about global, right? Yeah. Talk about ASEAN, right? How many of our companies operate in the ASEAN? We accept maybe the banks, mm. the bank right? Uh, but you have seen the results the yeah. last 10 years. Yeah. It has yeah. not been that successful, right? Yeah. Uh, the construction companies, right? They went to India, they went to Middle East, most of them came back. We give up. Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> the Chinese so, are so cost competitive, also. Yeah. <laughs> so you ask me, the reality is that for Malaysian companies, it's not never been easy. Mm. Uh, even for, for me, right? People have been asking, what can I go to other countries to set up the assignation business? Mm. I said, it's difficult. It's not yeah. easy. Yes. When we are operating in a local market, we understand local dynamics. But to try to go to other countries, yeah, uh, you really have to think very hard why you are there and what gives you the ability to be successful in those countries. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, yeah, and services uh, companies are quite hard to be to globally expand. Manufacturing is a lot easier. Yeah, manufacturing is slightly easier. Yeah, services uh, is the nuance. Uh, yeah, but but the fact is that services companies have been very difficult to establish anyway. Mm, yeah, that's uh, true. They are so used to goods as a company as yeah. we as we actually invest. Yeah, we're very used to, but, but services actually is the most asset-like, um, capital-like industry. Correct. Uh, but it's the most difficult to, to, to right. build uh, traction or, or scale. Yeah. Uh, but once you can do that, because it, it involves customer experience, it involves a very different thing, because it's not tangible. You can't 
touch and feel it. Correct. That's right. That's right. Very different thing altogether. But I can tell you, if anyone can do it, it's, it's going to be a very, very worthwhile journey for them. Yeah. In whatever services that they think they can do. Yeah. Look at the uh, C Limited. You know, the numbers from Latin America is just growing like crazy. Yeah. You know, we, we who would have thought, right? Someone from China mm. set up base in Asia. <laughs> Uh, beat the incumbents like Lazada. I used to be a big Lazada fan. Now I see, you know, I saw Shopee yeah. all the way and then they're doing right. replicating the same thing in Latin America, you know. So it's not easy like what you say, but I think it takes uh, a lot of gut and also entrepreneurial spirit, yeah. uh, the determination to do that. Yeah. So, so I, I look at businesses, I mean, when I ask myself, when I look at two, two same, same businesses in the same industry, why one is doing well and the other one is struggling. Yeah. And they could be very tough industry at that point of time. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Because you, it boils down to only one thing, mm. management, mm. the people running it, yes. and how they navigate. And not only are they using a very different environment uh, to, to that needs to be navigated through, but they use it as an opportunity to, to set the base for the next growth cycle. For wow, themselves. yeah, that's so, so true. I think to me, it's all about management. Mm. All right. So in terms of industry, we talk a little bit about C and, and e-commerce as a growing one. What are some industries that you're excited about for the future right now? Less scale and things like that. Sorry, less scale? No, that has scale, like uh, oh. what you mentioned. Not in Malaysia. I mean, I, I've been actually investing in, in, in other parts of the world and, and I find that there's a lot more interesting companies in other parts of the world where I been putting a fair bit of investments is actually in, in relating to cloud computing. Mm. Uh, I see that the adoption of cloud is still at a very uh, early stage. Uh, it's going to compound growth at about 40, 50% mm-hmm. of five years. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, cloud computing is such that it's a big boy game, right? Yeah, um, that's right, that's right. Uh, the guys like the AWS, the guys that are the Microsoft, uh, the Alibaba, the Tencent, they are way ahead in yeah. this area. Yeah. yeah, I think the West uh, will dominate uh, in, in a much bigger way. Mm. Uh, and the uh, East will, will come in and, and, and probably capture some part of Asian markets. And, and, and that's how it's going to be it's gonna be get divided. Mm. Um, but, but there's ample opportunity from individual to enterprise mm-hmm. and also to government. Mm. Right? A lot of governments have not even adopted crowd. Yeah. And there's yeah. a lot more opportunities there. And, and I, I think this is a space that will continue to explode over the next five years. If you can get your hand to invest into some of these things, it's both investing. Yeah. I think governments is because of uh, on-prem security and all that. I mean, like in infrastructure, you know, while we were setting this up, uh, I, I think even your laptop, if you want to install a software for your laptop, uh, Mr. Tang, also you are very afraid. I think that, that is slowly changing in your perspective, I think. Yeah, I think everything is, is no longer on-prem. Now. You're yeah. just going to go cloud. Yeah. Even we ourselves in my business, right? We're yeah. changing it. Yeah. We're trying to get a lot of our data sitting on in the cloud because it makes it easier mm. uh, to submit the clients. Um, so I, I think there's laws of opportunity there. And I think one shouldn't lose focus and continue to deploy uh, into this particular space. Great. What are industries now that you kind of like think is a really sunset that you would avoid at all costs? <laughs> <laughs> what industry will I think is sunset? Uh, um, I can't think of any. I mean, uh, 
Uh, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. To say yeah, I understand. <laughs> okay, we respect that. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay, before I, no, I, I think we. I mean, maybe I can say what I say it to the owner before. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Uh, there was once a friend of mine who owns an automotive business came mm. to see me, mm. and they were one of the largest supplier to Proton, mm. right? Mm. And they are listed, and the ROE is two percent. Oh, oh man! <laughs> I told him as a friend. It's good to shut it down and sell the assets. Mm. So, if, to me, if you look at the deployment of the assets, the and the ROE, and on a consistent basis, if it doesn't make sense with very low single-digit ROE mm. or ROA, uh, you must just shut down the business and put all your money into bank deposits and at least earn two percent. So oh yeah, exactly. Or put with uh, Wang, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I think I said that to them. I said the, with the change in proton and all these other dynamics going on, the industry will get more competitive, and the suppliers from China would would do the skill yeah. that they have. Yeah, there's no way you can compete. So yeah. I told them maybe you should consider sunsetting the business and return the capital to investors, sell the assets away, and move on. Yeah, I think that's uh, good advice. So uh, before I move on to just uh, uh, about to get your thoughts about the market, right? Uh, I think we want to touch something that I can't believe it. We totally missed out in our questions, which oh. is actually your thoughts on valuation. Oh yeah, because you mentioned important. you mentioned <laughs> things like five percent uh, dividend yield, the company you want the profit growth to be like 15 percent uh, or more. But the challenge, of course, is for investors that these companies tend to trade at valuations that are yeah. quite rich. I mean, like even in Malaysia, you know, you look at QL resources, they're like about 50, 50 60. 50 PEs, VTROPs at 70 yeah. PE, you know, what's, what kind yeah. of premium? So, <laughs> yeah, so, so the question today, in the past, I guess, is more of uh, like, can can you find a growth company trading under 10 times earnings? Today, you can almost forget it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so the, then my question to you is, what is the appropriate premium, as John mm. pointed out? What mm. is the appropriate premium? Because, it, yeah, you can grow at 30%, but it's 120 <laughs> PE. <laughs> so, what, how do you solve this upside-down world, you know, I guess? Uh, I think these days, um, the old framework of valuation is out the window. Mm. I mean, I, if you think that things are expensive and you don't want to buy you wouldn't buy anything, but just put your money in FD. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, good things don't come cheap in this environment. Oh yes, over the last yeah. few years yeah. that I observed, right? Yeah, things, yeah. good things are getting more and more expensive. Uh, things that are no good are getting cheaper and cheaper. They're trading at 0.5 times price of both. Do you want to buy them? <laughs> they are affordable. <laughs> they are affordable, but they won't move. They won't yeah, make money yeah, out. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas uh, the ones that can generate ROEs of about 15, 20% a year, trades that maybe price the bulk of eight times. Mm. That's how the market will price them. Yeah. And the market is efficient. I always think, don't think the markets are, are not are wrong. Always, be, always have this mentality. Markets are always right. Because markets consist of, of thousands and thousands of people investing at the same time. They can't be wrong. Mm. Can't be, everybody is wrong and you are right. Yeah. <laughs> that's something I also tell myself must always remember mm. that I cannot be the only smart one in the market yeah, is right. right. Everyone is wrong. Cannot yeah. be. Over time, the market is right. Everyone else against it is wrong. That's, mm, that's right. Correct. 
you must have that belief. Otherwise, you'll be wiped off by the market. Yeah. So I have come to understanding that um, today, if I want to have a good companies, I'm prepared. I must prepare to pay up. Mm-hmm. How much I must be able to pay up is question. Of how long are you prepared to sit out the position? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, if you are not prepared to pay up, then you wait for corrections to buy. Mm-hmm. Because the correction doesn't mean the business are going down. It's just a market condition has changed, and 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 that has affected valuation parameter like today. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, but but the companies are cheaper in valuation. Uh, because of the correction, and but the business model continues to be valid. Yeah, and you should be buying just like the last six nine months we've seen uh, Microsoft consolidating the share oh, price yes. yeah. to two thirty. Right, it was trading at two fifty, came back down to two twenty five, two thirty today at two sixty five. Mm. But has between two sixty and two thirty, did the business model change? No, it's yeah, the same. Of company. But of course, valuation came down and markets consolidated one year forward earnings, and today look at twenty twenty two earnings. Yeah. So, so my point to you is really that if you are not prepared to stomach uh, those high valuations, then you wait for the bad, the bad times to come. Right. Uh, in the market cycle, that may come through every year. And you buy during that period of time. Don't chase with everyone else. Yeah. Uh, but if you're scared that you miss out completely, then the way to do is this. Mm. Buy some and wait it out the balance. Mm. But if you buy too higher, you double up. Your cost is still cheaper than the market. Exactly. If it comes down, you can average down a position and you feel better because mm. you've got everything cheaper. Yeah. So, so, so my view is that it's, a, it's just a panic of buying. Mm. Uh, not so much of valuation. Yeah. So I have a follow-up question then because I remember a bit earlier in, uh, in our discussion, you talked, to, you share with us your interactions with your analysts or fund managers <laughs> and they're asking you to, hey, just buy those companies with 15 times sales, you know? No, no earnings, 15, no, no, 15 times sales. 15 times sales. Uh, like, so then in those cases, do you, like, what, what will your decision process be? Like, do you say that that is just too much of for me or do you say, hey, but the ROE is pretty good, you know, all this, uh, there's probably growth, so I'm going to put buy a bit. Like, what, what usually is your reaction to things like that? I said, forget it. <laughs> okay. Because like 15 times sales, there's no profit, there's no EBITDA, there's nothing to measure. Right, right. Sales, okay? <laughs> I, I said, no lah. I, I just tell them I'm too old for these things. <laughs> That's good. good. They can't argue. They cannot argue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No way. Yeah. So uh, I, I think we want to move on the, the discussion to a bit more of asset management. Yes, but I just yes. have one last question about just investing in general because mm. you talk about the environment and all that. And right now, obviously, you know, uh, there's there's always things going on around the world. There's uh, the trade war. There's always disputes, low interest rates, quantitative easing, and all that. So, what is your handle? What is your grasp of the world right now in terms of the market? I, I think the world functions on steroids at the moment with lots of liquidity provided by the central banks. And there will be periods where easy money can be made, like last year. There will be periods like now where there's still money to be made, but it gets very difficult mm. uh, because the conditions are changing. Yeah. Number two, uh, cycles are very short uh, because of that flow of money and then the way the world is changing, uh, where there are not only uh, investors generally, individually, but there are also algo traders. Yeah, right. They are very leveraged in nature. They are also functioning in the marketplace and they move very fast and they are very momentum-driven in the in the in their philosophies mm. uh, and whatever opportunities that you see uh, available in the marketplace it narrows it narrows very fast I see. Uh, so market cycles are tend to be very just like when you said uh, we should be buying value uh, to growth and within a period of three four months the entire space just completely close up right mm. uh, whatever 
shareholders. In, and, and today we are seeing banks starting to correct, share, share, bank, banking sector starting to correct and share price starting to come down again. Uh, and all this happens in, in a period of less than a year. Mm. Uh, I think just bear in mind, cycles, cycles are very, very short. Okay. Right? Uh, and you need to navigate through that particular noise I see. Uh, of the marketplace. Yeah. Um, I think the last thing I, I, I would say is that um, try try not to be too reactive these days. Mm. Uh, it's easy to, to be most fashionable uh, <laughs> in your investment style. When people say it's value, wow, I'm a value investor. When people say significant, I am a commodity investor. You will uh, lose money. Try not to do that, right? Try, try to be consistent in the, your approach and, and not be just uh, caught in by whatever that you hear from CN, CNN or CNBC or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, try to make your own judgments. Uh, don't yeah. be swayed by these people so easily. Yeah, we are right? in the investment when business. Price, when oil price goes up to 70, you will hear someone from, uh, so far, someone from one of the bigger investment banks will tell you you should go to 100. Mm. When oil price goes down to 20, you hear someone to tell you that it will be at zero. Yeah. There's no end to these things, right? <laughs> yeah. You must have whole perspective on matters yeah. uh, to write through the marketplace. Yeah, we, we're not in the fashion business, uh, we're in the investment business. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well said, uh, actually, that, uh, Mr. Tang. So speaking of the investment business, I think now is an interesting time to mm. talk about uh, what you do. Yes. Right? And uh, there's a big this debate, there's yeah. a big discussion, especially with a lot of newer types of asset management companies coming and, up. And also the cohorts of people coming in yeah, because yeah. of the millennial they cohorts. Are the millennial yeah. generation, the people my age. Right now, we are starting to gain some disposable income. So thinking of uh, where to put our money becomes a lot bigger. And I want to focus that conversation down to mutual funds and ETFs. So the argument today is that if I am someone who wants to invest my money, right? Let's say there's only two options, mutual funds and ETFs. With the mutual funds, there's a lot more paperwork involved. Uh, then you've got things like the sales charge and then there's there's the higher AUM fees. Or you can go for ETF uh, providers. Either you buy the ETF off the market, which I believe uh, uh, Afin Huang is a trailblazer in, or you go to robo-advisors, mm. right? So it seems to me the change is not happening as fast as the West because it literally like when the vanguards and all that came on, it literally took the US by storm. I think today the majority of assets are like ETF uh, back. So what what's your stance on this? And of course, being on one of these sides, uh, I, I'd love to hear your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I have been um, observing the industry over the years and how it evolving and I also uh, as I as I said just like my own investment approach I also don't fight trends. Make trends your friend. Okay trend is always your friend, right? So you just do write it. Yeah. Uh, even in my business that I'm doing, I, I always look at trends and I try to adopt it adapt it and, and try to write with it. On the on the issue of really ETFs and and um, and, and mutual funds, I think uh, there are two is a separate thing altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, mutual funds uh, are actively managed funds. And the question is really, uh, do you still need actively managed funds That's uh, right, compared yes. to, to, to ETFs that are passive? And clearly, as I said to you earlier in the conversation, a lot of the fund managers don't deserve to be paid the, the, the fees mm. because they couldn't really do a better job than the ETFs. Mm. And for those managers, then they don't deserve to be in the industry. I know <laughs> I'm speaking very strongly. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope it, uh, my, my, my peers don't, don't, don't hit me badly. <laughs> but I said, if you want, just I tell my managers, 
You want to be paid a salary. Yeah. Make sure you yeah. do a good job. Make mm. sure you deliver the real return to your investors. You don't need to be to be to be to be, to be uh, shoot through the moon and, and and get the returns. But you need to be over three years consistently delivering uh, some form of a positive return to your clients yeah. uh, above the market. And and that's where you keep your job. That's where you keep your earning. You must have that. You must have that drive to believe that. And and I said the magic number. Is about ten to twelve percent consistently mm-hmm. over a rolling average on mm-hmm. an equity fund. On a fixed income fund, you can do four five percent per annum net of fees. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, net of fees over 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 a period of three to five years rolling average. You have a job to do. Yeah, right. People will pay you for the job. Yeah, but you are just giving excuses every time you underperform and you're not delivering a result, which fund managers are very good at. <laughs> What are some of the worst excuses? What are some of the worst excuses that you get? I have to buy because it's in the benchmark. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Now, um, now, now I, I, my managers know that I'm very straightforward with these matters. I say mm. we're here only for one reason. That's to help our clients grow their wealth. Yeah. And if you cannot do that, then don't stay in this job. Mm. Let's move on. Mm. Right? And that's something that I believe in. Yeah. I myself believe in that this should be our mantra, should be our approach. Yeah. So whether we are using ETF or whether we are using uh, mutual funds, the same applies, right? Mm. If you are using ETF as a means to build our portfolio, which we do have some solutions, mm-hmm. using mm-hmm. ETF to build the portfolios, then the same applies. Mm. That even with ETFs, even with the lowering of fees, we still have to deliver a positive return over a reasonable time horizon. Mm. And that's the approach I've used for this business. I see. Yeah, I, I have a, 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 a another supplementary question to that because most of the ETFs are, uh, are actually governed by indexes and the struggle is these indexes are in a way, as you rightly pointed out, and I'm very much in your camp, in a way blind indexes. Are. Yeah. And how will an ETF, in a way, um, I was listening to this uh, legend, uh, Mario Gabelli of uh, Gabelli Asset Management, and he was he said something that was very peculiar because he says it's not a black box passive investing for his ETF. And I was wondering, is there possibility of an actively managed ETF, reasonable fees, and is it possible to have a product somewhere uh, like this in the market actually? It's coming out actually. Yeah. Sure. I think I think we are seeing a start of the trend okay. on uh, actively managed uh, ETFs coming out mm-hmm. uh, at a lower fees okay. uh, and traded through the exchange. Mm. I think uh, started off with Ark, which is really a company that's owned uh, partly owned by Nico, as I mentioned, which is really my parent, our, 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 our shareholder. Okay, and they started. Um, Cathy Wood started off the. Uh, the first actively traded uh, ETF in yeah. US. Yeah. And today, I must say, it's, get, it's gaining traction. Mm. So we are also looking at it to see whether we can do something like that. Mm. Uh, it's not a passive uh, ETF, it's an actively managed ETF. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We are trying to understand how it works, I see. Uh, how to get the benchmark going and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, or we plow ourselves into it. But, but again, uh, it's coming on. Okay. Uh, actively managed ETF. Great, great. The second struggle for most, um, okay, I would I would have to use the word traditional, but you know the the pioneer asset management companies like you guys, like Public Mutual, all this, and there's this slew of uh, robo advisory coming up with huge marketing budgets and huge, you know, uh, obviously <laughs> we're not going to name names, but. That is what appeals to the millennial. Yeah, know, the younger generation. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, EKYC, uh, very yeah. little paperwork and all that. 
Where do you think it's an unfair advantage? Probably one. And two is that why aren't uh, the more traditional asset management companies jumping on board faster? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think there's unfair advantage. I think it's fair that the new players are coming in to disrupt the marketplace. Mm. I always welcome competition. Mm. That's my approach to the business. Mm. Competition only helps us to grow stronger. Great. Without competition, you will slack and, and you will just you just enjoy the success of the past mm. without innovating and growing going forward. Mm. That's my approach to the business. So I embrace competition op- openly. Okay. I, I believe that's the approach that all of us must have to the business. Yeah. Now, why are the assisting players not responding? The answer is I think there is a lot of um, um, distribution point, distribution pains mm. uh, assisting businesses have uh, that may inhibit their way, the way they, 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 they run the business and be able to open it up. Mm. My view for, I'm only going to speak for Afinho Asset Management, is that we, would, we need to embrace it. And that's why uh, we have a team looking at it and, 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 and again, uh, decide um, which of the space we need to be in uh, and how do we want to go into that space. Uh, we must also reckon that we don't have the same budget as some of these boys that are operating because they're funded by P people who mm. have no pain of spending money. Right? <laughs> Whereas I have shareholders who ask me, why am I spending so much money without revenue? Mm. Uh, they look at a different metrics, I look at different metrics. Mm. So we, we need to be smart in how we embrace that competition. Mm-hmm. The other thing I also realized in this business is this. Investments is not a product. Uh, that is bought off the shelf. Mm, that's true. is a product that must be sold to you. Mm. Right? Generally, that's mm. how it works. Because yeah. we, we start off by saying how much we lack the knowledge of investments. Yeah. Similarly, insurance likewise. Yes. It's not a product that can be just sold. Uh, it must be bought. Uh, it's not got to be bought. It must be sold mm. by someone. And I'm a big believer in on that front. That investments is a product that has to be uh, so you need to guide people. You need to talk to people about their investment needs over time, mm. about their, their, their needs of their investments. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I, I don't believe that uh, just having robot advisor is one solution to all of it. Mm. Uh, I believe the way to go forward is that you may have salespeople. You may use some of the robot advisors, some of the technology to help in servicing the clients, in mm. help to make smarter decisions for our clients and be more efficient in the way uh, uh, we do our business. Uh, at the same time, the clients can benefit from it uh, without overcharging the clients. Mm. That's mm. So I, I believe the, the big solution lies in having uh, human and machine working together I see in that. the past. It's just not pure a machine type of game for for, for, for investments. That's that's my belief. I may be wrong, but let's see how it pans out. Great. But you know, there's right now in terms of trend, there's almost universal praise for ETFs, right? And you know, especially in areas like the West where a lot of pension funds are built on ETFs and um, people's retirement are built on it. And then when you see the account growing since 2008, it's been going up and up and up. In a way, you can't blame them for thinking that uh, ETF is one of the greatest, uh, you know, financial innovations <laughs> in history. But of course, when um, there is uni- almost universal praise for something, then you know people don't look at some of the downsides or certainly what could go wrong, right? Yeah. Like uh, you mentioned, uh, this blue sky now. What is the gray sky? 
And in your view, what is the gray sky of ETFs? And what do you think people are not looking at yeah. when it comes to the risk? I think it's a misallocation of uh, resources. Mm. When you look at ETFs, you're, it's a blind money, as mm. John put it, right? Yeah. Let's blindly allocate, right? I, I want US exposure. I don't care what's in there. I just put 100 bucks in US. But within it, there may be seat in the companies that may not well, may not be well managed, may have very poor ROEs, may have be a declining trend, but you still invest in that because it's part of the index. You say, oh, it's only 0.5% of the index. Doesn't matter. Hmm. So I think that's the approach of ETF. I, I find that you staff a lot of companies that are up and coming. Hmm. Very good really point. And I think that's not right from a provider of capital perspective. I, I am part of the system to provide capital to companies to grow their business. And I think we need to do our part to ensure that enough capital reaches the, uh, the, the, the companies that need those capital to grow their businesses. Mm. Uh, and I think that's the part of the role that we play in this, in this, in this industry. Uh, so I think the one the downside to ETS is really about blind capital. Mm. Uh, but that's why you find the ETS is also increasingly evolving. Uh, to 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 have smart ETF coming out at one stage, and today active ETF coming out. Yeah. So I think I think you you see that. How come it looks so close? <laughs> right. So I think I think increasingly uh, there are there are, there are, there are a lot of these uh, things that are evolving in the industry. The last thing I I I I, I, I will say is that despite ETF coming on to the marketplace in the last twenty years or so. We ourselves have also grown mm. in 20 from 20 million today we are 80 billion. Yeah. And all the money that we have accumulated, our active money. Mm. We that every day, yes, ETF is important. We recognize the importance of it. But at the same time, for managers, uh, we must then also deliver value to our investors and they'll be able to explain that. And there's still a role for us to play. It's not the end of the world. Of course. Um, and we just need to be able to explain ourselves out to the marketplace so that when the investors get their returns, we say these are net of all fees. Mm. And this is what you get. Investors generally, in my view, uh, they, are, they, are, they, are, they are quite appreciative uh, that over time they've seen the wealth growth with us, uh, they, are, they, are, they, are, they are very comfortable yeah. uh, investing with us. Great. So building on that, uh, sorry, uh, little, Building on that, right? Let's give active management some love right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I, let's say if I'm new in the market, I'm in my twenties or thirties, and you know I believe you your point about ETFs. You know the blindness. I you know I want to stay away from it. How should one go about choosing the right mutual fund? Yeah. There's no just, one right mutual fund, actually, right. MJ. There's no one thing. I think mutual fund is all about whether what risk appetite you have mm. and you need to take it to your own risk appetite and your expectation. If you're age of 20 plus, you can take more volatility and risk. You can write the growth. Then you probably have a little bit more equity that fixed income embedded in the portfolio. And then when you look at the equity, you look at it, you say, should I be in Malaysia? Should I be in Asia? Should I be in global? And then you then have to proportionally, or should I be in thematics uh, of uh, mutual funds that are tech, tech buyers, that are tech driven or structural in nature. And then you tailor it accordingly with the exposure. And then you have, um, at the other side, do I have, do I want to have more, a little bit more income-based uh, uh, funds that are more into REITs, are more into dividends and stuff mm. like that. So there's a lot of different ways mm. of structuring your portfolio. 
Uh, and the beauty about Malaysian Malaysian industry is that we have all grown so much over the years. We have a lot of different funds in the marketplace. Right. Yeah. We can easily tailor a solution for you or for individual, depending on really what's your need and what you want to achieve over time. Okay. Um, and, 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 and I think that's, that's probably the approach that we have taken to the business. Not only looking at your risk, looking at the return expectation, and then tailor a solution for you. Great. Um, one more love for mm-hmm. active management mm-hmm. is... Uh, <laughs> I admire a lot of your philosophies, uh, Mr. Tang, and one of it was um, skin in the game. And um, I think in your previous interviews you've given, um, you said that, hey, you guys work in fund management. You active, you actively manage other people's money. But then if you do not have alignment <laughs> with people's money, how, how, how can that be true? Because you've seen fund managers that put their money outside, but their own fund that they're managing for other people. And you, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned it was about 165 million the last uh, time. Has that grown? And is that a philosophy you want to carry forward for your staff? Meaning, hey, if you're a fund manager, you're managing other people, you have to put some money in as well because that's skin in the game. I think the last count that we have just a month, a month ago, the, the number, the amount of... Uh, uh, money that our staff has in our funds is now about 180 million. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's not small. Yeah. I mean, uh, I always tell them jokingly, say, see how well all you are paid uh, in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the truth is that I didn't force them mm. to invest. I, I gave all of them a choice, a chance to invest. Uh, just that when you invest, you don't pay sales charge, but you pay the same uh, AUM fee like anyone else. Mm. There's no discount. Right. We all pay the same fee, yeah. so like all our other clients. Mm. But more importantly, we align our interests with our clients. So we, we I set the example. I'm the one. Of, we are one of the earliest one to say that we'll put all our, most of our savings in our funds. Mm. And and over time, everyone in the firms, hundred percent, all of them invested their savings into wow. our. Wow. And I let them decide what they want to invest in. Yeah. I don't choose. Just as I say, when you invest, you cannot you cannot churn. You just invest long term mm. over a period of months or years, mm. right? Uh, don't churn. Don't, don't don't churn. That's not a healthy 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 thing to do. Yeah. So I think all my all my staff are pretty happy investors yeah. in the last twenty years in the funds. Yeah. I guess their experience must be good. Otherwise, they wouldn't put the money <laughs> exactly. in there. Right? They would have withdrawn it themselves. But I think their experience has been good, and and that's why they are very confident. Uh, today, I don't need to tell them. Whenever bonus time comes, you know that the amount invested in the funds will have just gone up uh, the following weeks or so after the bonus payout. Wow. Um, uh. I, think, I think that's 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 the that's the alignment that we have, lah. Great. Uh, with the firm, uh, it wasn't something that we planned actually. Mm. So it's something that we, we started off saying that this is a good thing to do, yeah. and over time we just catch like wildfire within the firm. And I'm only proud of my staff to say that today, if you walk to any asset management in Malaysia, yeah. I don't think you have similar parameters. Precisely, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You can ask any of them, is, hey, how much do your client, your staff invest in your funds? I don't think you see these numbers. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, why when I, that's why when I first heard it, Mr. Tang, I was like, wow, yeah. this is really skin in the game. Uh, very admirable. <laughs> I, mean, this, I mean, this is how I tell my, my, my clients, I say, look, uh, make money, lose money. Yeah, they, we cannot determine short term by the market. We only can marketplace will determine. Yeah. But at least we are all in there together. And I think yeah. that's a big comfort yes. to a lot of the clients. Right. So, I mean, for you personally, right, uh, do you think that having uh, your money in the fund itself also, like explain to me in detail what it's like, right, psychologically, <laughs> that it does to you that, you know, does it obviously has worked out, right? So maybe you can explain that a little bit, having put your own money into the fund as well. <laughs> 
I, I don't really, it has no psychological impact on me because uh, to me, it, it, I, I invest it long term. I, mm. I know that a lot of my funds are well managed by my managers. Mm. Uh, yes, like, 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 like this year is relatively flattish. I make two, three percent on those investments. I say, so be it. We won't, I won't, I won't just take it out and then shift and do active uh, relocation. No, um, I'll just put it there and just write it over the time. Mm. Uh, depending on my requirement on currencies that I need and, and, and whatnot I need uh, for the family. Uh, so it has no psychological effect on how I manage the money. Just I like to know that I've actually put money together with my clients into nice. the same fund. Uh, that, that's how you won't like just because I put money here I want to do specially for this fund give it an extra a little bit of booster right. that's not that's not the, that's not the person it, it's all about um, uh, wanting to make our money also grow yeah. uh, together with our clients and that's how we and, and the other thing I would say MJ as manager because we're all so busy with our work yeah. sometimes our own investments are the worst investments that wow. you ever see okay? yeah we got no time looking at it Correct. and we are also bound by a lot of regulations by SC on our own personal investments mm. and we don't want to hack it yeah. like I don't want to put nominee name la, put everybody's name <laughs> very messy yeah. all the Yimaku all the Yimaku uh, all the name there <laughs> and now you tremble when SC comes for investigation for investigation so I decided 30 years I think it was probably about 25 years ago that I have no, I close down all my trading accounts mm. and all my investments are just in my our funds. That's it. I, I try not to be too, 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 too smart about it and say, uh, do do things outside the system. I say, no, forget it. Just put everything here and let's let it grow. And I can tell you, uh, it has grown very well for me over the last uh, 20 years. Great. Uh, investing in funds. Yeah, great. So uh, speaking of uh, uh, analysts, what, what I find really interesting, I think you are the only guest on the podcast that has this um a privilege and current situation, which is that you not only manage funds, but yeah. you also manage fund managers. Yes. <laughs> I think that's very unique yeah. because, you know, how is it even like managing all these presumably highly intelligent, highly ambitious people who, or maybe they're not so ambitious or they should be more, maybe you can let us know, right? <laughs> uh, but but uh, how do you manage these sort of people, you know, high, highly qualified probably opinionated, extremely intellectual, managing hundreds of millions, maybe even billions. billions yeah. How's that? How's that like? You know, um, I, I, I tell them that um, my expectation of managers is this. You must be humble. Mm -hmm. What is given to you is a trust, mm. the fiduciary duty mm. that you must fulfill to the best of your ability in managing those money. It's not a position of favor. It's not a position uh, of, of strength that you take for granted. Mm. And I only expect one thing from all my managers. I expect them to be, to have, to be humble, mm. to have humility and not to go around uh, thinking that now they are a billion dollar fund manager. They can bully anybody, any way they want. I say, until you are a billionaire, I don't care how you be there. Wow. But until you, if you are not a billionaire, then you become like me. Mm. We all be as humble as we could, be as helpful as we could to everyone else and don't go around with your big ego. Mm. Because I am a big, I'm good in crushing egos. Wow. wow. <laughs> oh, please, please explain. Please explain more. <laughs> Maybe give a case study, you know. <laughs> really want to know. So there was once we have, a, we have a PM, I mean, he's a good PM, right? But unfortunately, his ego got hold of him and one day it was an IPO, then I told them, I think it's a good IPO, let's participate with all our funds and he didn't want to participate. And when the 
IPO came around and the share price went up 10, 15 percent. I said, why don't you participate? Mm. He just turned around and told me that, does it matter? Wow. And I, that within the two weeks, I told him, I think it's time, if you have this attitude, I think it's a time for you to leave this firm. Wow. And I'm sure that he leaves the firm. Wow. Right? I said, you are not a team player and you have such a big ego. I think it's time to go. Mm. So, so we make him, we became, we make him leave, leave wow. the firm. Right. So we have certain code that we all share yeah. in our Pinhua asset management. Yeah. And one of the code that I, that I constantly tell all the PMs is have a good behavior, have a good mm. attitude. I see. Don't mistreat this person. You don't, don't. What you must remember is that you must build a personality yourself. Mm. It's a chair that people are respecting. But if you can move beyond the chair, that people respect you for who you are, then you have arrived. Wow. Right? Not the chair that you sit on. The chair you can sit on can go away as, as, as it comes. But more importantly, is you as a person, your personality, your knowledge, and your attitude. That Those are the things you must work on. Do you think that if that, that PM just said that the reason I didn't participate was because of reason X, Y, Z, and I'm willing to be wrong, do you think you were for... I was okay. It's okay. Everybody is entitled to be wrong. Mm. It's, it's, not, it's not an issue for me. Right? But, but you have an attitude. I, I can't take it. I would, said no. That's, yeah. not, that's not how the team works. That's not how Afin Hot Submission works. Yeah. We work as a team. Yeah. Right? Uh, and we don't like it. you don't like people with a big attitude going around uh, just because you are managing 100, 500 million, 1 billion. And I said, goodness sake, those money that we, you allowed, we let you manage mm. are those money that we painstakingly build up in this business. Yeah, It's not yours. It's not yours. As that's why I said, until you are worth 500 million, 1 billion, you can do anything you want in your life. <laughs> I, I don't care. Right? It's not my not, not my problem anymore. Yeah. But until you reach the stage when you're working here, I expect you have the right attitude to the business. Great. So that leads me to my next point, which is very interesting, and yeah. that is about decision the decision making process when it comes to fund managers, right? Because I studied funds in the past, and some people have the single trigger puller yeah. uh, system where. There'll be many, many PMs, many, many fund managers, but there's one guy ultimately deciding, saying, yeah. yes, I like your idea, go. I don't like your idea, don't go. Then some, you have multiple trigger pullers where there's Invest a sub guy. Investment committee. Yeah, there's an investment committee. At, no, or rather, they, they are allowed free reign, like your mm -hmm. fund managers, that like you don't have to ask me whether you want to buy or not. You just work within the, param the predetermined parameters for your fund, and then you can just make the decision. So what is it like at Afin Huang, actually, when it comes to this dynamic? I think it's uh, something that we're trying to improve over time. Mm. Um, obviously, in the past, the decisions stay with a few people mm. in the organization. That was probably about 15 years ago. <laughs> but today, as we grow bigger, we can't have that. We need to decentralize the decision process. Mm. But how do we keep our performance at the same time decentralized? Right. Yes. I think those are very difficult. It means trust. Mm. Uh, how do we find people that we trust to be able to carry out? the role, I play out the role very well. Mm. As such, we decided uh, last uh, 10 years or so to say that, okay, why don't we decentralize? Every PM can make certain decisions that they want, mm. uh, but subject to certain parameters. Mm -hmm. Number two, we need absolute transparency. Mm. That means whatever anyone buys and sells in the firm, 
it must be communicated to everyone mm. uh, before they do so, so that everyone is fully aware mm. what is happening. You, you you cannot say, I buy these things and you keep quiet about it. When you went down, you say, oh, uh, and you forgot to inform anybody. No. Okay. You must tell, you, tell us a reason. Be open about it. It's okay. We are not saying you cannot be wrong. We are saying that just be open about it. And if I see something I don't like, some of the stocks that you're doing that I don't like, uh, we can voice our objection to it. Right. And we can highlight to you the issues. Yeah. But if you, it doesn't mean that you cannot buy. I give uh, one example. I used to have a PM who comes and tell me that he wants to buy uh, some China stocks that are in the high-tech industry. And I told him, guys, uh, the risk is very high. Mm. You are just betting on an event, the wrong event. And I said, don't do it. But but he said he wants to do it. And I said, do it small. Mm. When I said do it small, you buy one, two percent exposure. If you're wrong, so be it. Yeah. But he didn't listen. He went to buy five percent. Wow. I mean, the thing really didn't work out again. Uh, you know what happened? <laughs> it, it a big, big talking by me. And I told him, you're just very stubborn. I already told you many times, don't mm. do that. Mm. Eventually, also you have to leave the firm. So, I, so I think I think we, we set parameters. I think where it's important in the financial industry is to train our talents yeah. and to nurture confidence. Mm. If you don't allow them ability to navigate, they won't build their confidence. Mm. We need to give them rope uh, to move around. Uh, hopefully, not enough to hang themselves, uh, <laughs> but good enough for you to explore yeah. and develop their confidence and their skill sets. In a, in a contract environment. That's what we want to do in our finance dimension. And that's what we do. Yeah. So everyone that we are appointed as PM, they have the ability to, to make decisions. We want them to decide. I see. Uh, we do not want to spoon feed them. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we want them to decide in a control environment where we know what risk they're taking on for the portfolio. If it's a big position that goes across all portfolios, it's very well discussed within the group. And mm-hmm. obviously the senior PMs, have a big say when it comes to this huge position. Mm. Assuming you take 200 million position in, in a stock uh, across the portfolios, I'm sure uh, the directors of investments, the CIO, myself, we will pitch in on, on, on these things. I see. Uh, but if it's uh, something that, that, that is much smaller, that, that then we allow them a lot more free room to, to, to maneuver. Great. Uh, riding on that, do you think stock investing is actually teachable or yeah. is it innate to someone? Because you talk about training, giving yeah. them ropes, <laughs> giving them confidence, right? Yeah. What has been your experience like when it comes to, you know, guiding uh, analysts? Some people have it, some people don't, or is it something trainable in your perspective? I, I, I think every, everyone is trainable. Mm. It's a question of whether you're good at it. Sorry. Mm. I mean, I asked you, can anyone drive the car? I said, yeah, everyone can drive the car. But they're not, everyone can be a Michael Schumacher, right? That's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the truth of it, right? That's something we all have to accept. Yeah. Some people just don't have it in them, mm. right? As much as they may have the technical new knowledge and the financial knowledge, uh, they read markets wrongly, they buy the wrong stocks, and they consistently do it, mm. right? So we can't help you when you, when you come to those those, those positions. Okay. So the point I'd like to make to really to your audience, to the men on the street is this, Investments is a full-time job. Mm. It's not something that you uh, like it, you, you just spend your time doing. It's a very painstaking job of really reading, observing, uh, following the markets on the day and whether the markets are down or up, uh, one has to continuously follow it and, and take interest in it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why um, investments can be learned if you have the interest and you do it consistently. Mm. You, 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 you go at it consistently and be good at it uh, over time. Yeah. Um, so there are some luck involved. Some people ask me, is investment luck or, or, or not? 
I said, there's always some luck to everything we do, right? <laughs> but you cannot depend on luck for investments, otherwise you lose your money. Yeah, right? possible. Let me just play that 10, 20 percent role. Uh, but essentially, if you want to be consistent, it has to be really hard work all the way. Great. Uh, nothing replaces hard work. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably last few questions. Um, I have one just before uh, okay, Liam please. to that is that uh, you, you mentioned something very interesting, which I think is relevant to some of our audience, and that is, Although our audience is a man on the street, what yeah. we find interesting is that some of these people have that natural flair for the technical part of investing. Yes. And you mentioned something that I want to touch on, which is that there are some of the people that you met so far, they are very good at the technical knowledge, whether it's the accounting, the finance, assessing options and warrants and all that. But then you're saying they also get market uh, calls wrong. Mm. So I'm just curious in your experience what is that gap what is it that these technically sound people are missing usually yeah ability to decide oh. ah. i have worked in my 30 years with award-winning research analysts wow and they move on from sell side and come to my side or the buy side mm. and become sector analysts they are good in writing papers <laughs> but it comes to making that call to put 50 million, 100 million to work, <clears throat> they, can't, they can't pull the trigger. Wow. They say, oh, maybe you should buy 10% cheaper. <laughs> but this, when you ask them, is it time to buy? Maybe it's 10% cheaper, 20% cheaper. <laughs> when it goes down another 10%, so how? Maybe you should wait again. And then when it goes down another 20%, I think we are we should buy now. You know, they work so hard on the paper. Why don't they trust it, you know, right? <laughs> me, that's where the gap is. Uh, the gap is all about the ability to make that decision, pull that trigger. Great. And the day you pull the trigger is the day you start to be measured. Mm. Real life. Where money can be made and money can be lost. Yes. In wow. a real life basis. Wow. And a lot of, and some I see couldn't cross the barrier. Wow. Good analysts, very good analysts. In fact, they're all award winning analysts in the region, <laughs> in Singapore. <laughs> But when it comes to asset management, they're just more wow. up the mark. Wow. So do you, have you encountered PMs in your life that are the opposite? They may not have the best technical knowledge, <laughs> but then they, they, they- Trigger happy. They just they just keep doing it. And, and it's, it's fine, you know, they, they say mistakes is part of the process. You know, and they're still in that process, you know. Have you enc encountered PMs like that before? Of course, of course. I, I've encountered different PMs. They are those that are trigger happy. Uh, they buy anything that moves. <laughs> <laughs> but again, um, they won't last la. yeah and you you i mean these days it's not just about um if you if you are just um managing your own money and doing it is okay but these days you have to go out back to your clients That's right. then of course when things are doing well it's easy to explain to client right it's blue sky yeah what if when things are not doing well yeah go out to your clients and tell them guys I've been trigger happy. That's why it went this way. You have to explain the strategy that you have taken. It has not worked. Why yeah. the strategy has not worked? Yeah. More importantly, how you intend to make it work mm. over the next one year. Yeah. That's how you hold the relationship. That's how you build trust. Yeah. You can't say I trigger here. It doesn't work. No, I trigger there. Also didn't work. Yeah. So, work that way. Yeah. so what about the guy who is a bit more nuanced and the guy who takes it very seriously? He covers all bases. He does, he's technically sound. He's good. And he has the ability to make decisions. Even if you do something like that, you know, mistakes still happens. So what do you say to people in that position where 
you know, how do you bounce back from mistakes? I guess that would be my question. Even though you've done all the work already. You have to be, you have to be confident of yourself, right? That's what we build. We are not here to destroy their confidence. I don't destroy their confidence. Mm-hmm. I try to build their confidence, mm-hmm. especially when they're young. I mean, like we went through 2018 during President Trump period of time when the markets were very volatile. I believe was Asian markets were down and one yeah. of the down. I was talking to my young PMs and they were down because the portfolio just got caught by it. So I was, I told him, it's not what happened in the past that matters to the clients. Mm. It's how you position yourself in the future mm. that matters to the clients. I've done it with so many clients over the many years of managing clients. And that's the same formula that I use. Mm. And I can tell you clients would know if you're confident or you're not. Mm. Or you're pushing all the way and trying to hide away your mistakes. Mm. It's okay to admit your mistake in front of your clients. It's okay. Nothing mm. wrong with it. Mm. But more importantly, you must provide a clarity on how you intend to let the portfolio recover. And that's more important. And that's how I build the confidence of my of, of my PMs to tell them, don't worry, it's mm. okay. Mm. Let's go and see the client together. And I'll be there with them to see the client wow. and then guide them how to pitch back to the client, how to talk to the client and, and, and get back the confidence. Then they have at least a period of six to nine months to a year to get the portfolio to recover. And that's very important. Great, great. Um, Really enjoyed this podcast. Yeah, there's I wish actually I could so many go. more questions. Yeah, actually, yeah, but, but we I don't take up too much of time. time. It's almost large. <laughs> yeah. But yes, John. Yes. So, um, I think this is a perennial question to a lot of parents and about managing their money. Do you have any tips or tricks that you know that you impart on your children to get them, maybe not to get into fund management or anything, but to be smarter about their money? Can you share some secrets with us? You know, I only have one girl okay. you know, and I've been telling her, no, you must try to take interest in fund management. Mm. And she said, no way, Dad. <laughs> because everyone will compare me to you and I will not be able to step into your shoe. <laughs> but I still tell her that, look, you, you're going to inherit the wealth and you should learn about different asset classes. And it's not, but it's not easy. Mm. Uh, going from very young, I've been in, getting her involved in the mutual funds industry to teach her what are the different asset classes and why we are investing in all these things. Uh, and give her a whole portfolio. Mm. Right? Give, her, give, her, give her a billion and say, this is your own money. Yeah. You go and try to invest and, and, and invest in mutual fund. Try not to dabble in stocks because you have no interest at all, but invest in mutual funds and, and, and get the understanding of it. Mm. I think the only way to start is to let the children have some money and, 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 and monitor them. Ah. And then teach them to ask them, why are you doing this? It's not a question of whether right or wrong. Maybe it's a 10,000, give them 10,000, give them uh, uh, 5,000 or whatever. Then start doing some asset location and, and get them interested mm. uh, in, uh, in in mutual funds. Or some of them may be interested in shares mm. and get them interested in shares and trade the shares themselves mm. uh, and, and make some mistakes along the way. It's okay. Mm. But with, with, with control risk, right? Uh, I think it's the right way of doing it wow. uh, to get them involved in it rather than completely ignore it. Uh, as I said, um, investments is something that a lot of us would need uh, for our children going forward. Yeah. Um, and the best way to, is to start them young yeah. right? uh, so that they, 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 they get some interest into it. Uh, the other thing I also have done, uh, but it's probably that so a lot of my friends' children that they get, uh, they come and join me and be an intern in my place to get ah. to learn a bit about investments. Uh, and learn about the basics about investments, which I hope I have imparted my our part into them to uh, get them some grounding on investments, so that they get some uh, some some exposure um, in the, in a later stage of their life. It may be useful for them. Great. 
Okay, uh, I think this is the final question. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Ting, time to do some sales. <laughs> <laughs> Why Afin Huang? Yes. Why, why Afin Huang over the rest? Yeah. I won't say why I've been more over the rest. I mean, okay. everyone has, everyone of, of us have our strength, have our weakness, and I, I'm also said I've been is not the perfect fund manager. We have our ups and our downs. Yeah. Just that we have won more clients than lost them over the years. We, I would say about us, the only thing, the, the thing about us is number one. Uh, we are very passionate about the business. You speak to me for one hour. You can speak to me for another one day. I will <laughs> tell you about this business, right? How much I, how passionate am I about this business? How much, what do I treasure? Where do I, what, what do I like about this business? If I can tell you, if I were to choose another career in my next life, you will still be fund management. Wow. wow. I, I never a day if I wake up that I don't look forward to come to office. Mm. Every day I look forward to come to office and I continue to put my time to this office to work. Uh, regardless of whether when it's up, markets are up or down, I just enjoy working. Mm. I enjoy uh, in, in this particular line of investments. It's a privilege, as I said to you. It, it's a privilege and it's, it, there's a lot of fiduciary duty that we fulfill. But, but again, it's a very interesting job because every day is different. Mm. The challenges are different every day. Yeah. Uh, but you just need to enjoy it, uh, enjoy the pace. So number one, we are very passionate about this business. Number two, we don't run this business like other people's money. We don't. We put our money to it. 180 million of our own savings is into the business. And 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 and, and that's very rare of any asset manager. People will tell you that we put our money in all the funds that we have, mm. just like you all. Typically, a lot of my clients will ask me, think you put your money or not? If I, if, and I typically, I'll tell them, yeah, I put my money. And that's when they say, okay, since you put your money, I'll put my money also. Mm. So that's why I'm a very poor cash. I, I, I go very little liquidity. My cash are deployed in the funds that we have in the firm. Yeah. I think the last thing I would say is that look at our track record. Now. I mean, we have been very consistent over the years. Um, and, and I think that's probably where why we are successful uh, is that we are very transparent mm. uh, and we are very sincere. We, we don't hide away our mistakes. Uh, we are, I, I'm the first one to readily admit our mistakes uh, and also not willing to go out there and take credit. Mm. Uh, let the clients say good thing about us. We don't say anything. If we have done anything good, clients will tell us, right? But when it comes to mistake, be the first one to admit, mm. right? When you have not done well, be upfront about it, it's okay. It's only human to make mistakes anyway. Yeah. Right? Uh, as long as they're all controlled mistakes, I think people are willing to accept it. Yeah. So that's the those are the three reasons why uh, people have stayed with me. I'm not asking anybody to invest in me. Uh, look through our track record, be comfortable when you invest. I know there's once I went to do marketing pitch and somebody wanted to put a uh, few hundred million with me on the first meeting, I rejected the wow. mandate. And I said, no, the, the person was surprised. Why no? Because we have not met for a long time. Right? <laughs> I said, no. Right? And I said, max 100 million. Mm. Right? And today we became good friends. I see. Um, over the years, the confidence grew. And today, obviously, it's a much bigger portfolio. Yeah. But the point was, I told them, you don't know me. Mm. You don't know us. Don't put so much in us. Mm. Because we go through ups and downs. I don't want you to panic when we go through correction. Yeah. Only after you've seen us go through up and down, then only you invest in a bigger way. Mm. Then you know how we navigate through difficult times of the marketplace and you are more confident. Yeah. Uh, then you don't pull out uh, when the times are bad. Great. This is a real, this is a real story. Yeah. It happens about 10 years ago. Yeah. And, 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 and today we became good friends. Yeah.
And with that, uh, we sadly have to bring the podcast to an end. Yeah. Perhaps a part two, uh, Mr. Ting. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know how much nuggets. I lost count of how much yeah. nuggets. We'll, Ting, we'll yeah. be, we will be re-listening and re-watching this podcast uh, for many years to come. Yeah. And guys, for those of you listening, um, we really, uh, today I would consider it a blockbuster. Oh, a yeah. real blockbuster. <laughs> and I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, you know, if you like this kind of content, just remember to give it a like, subscribe. If you're on YouTube, follow us on Spotify. And uh, see you in the next. Oh, and of course, thank, thank you. you for being on the podcast, yeah, Mr. Thing. Thank, really Absolute enjoyed pleasure. it. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Go forward to another session. Thank you very much. Right. Take okay. care. See you guys. Bye bye.